Welcome back to Outside the System. Today's episode is with Shiloh Bear, the founder of Creek Development, a commercial design and construction management company that specializes in highly technical projects like building labs for biotech. Her company has done projects for a bunch of brands you've heard of, like Y Combinator, Lyft, Blue Bottle, and many more. Shiloh has a highly unusual background for someone in the real estate industry, and her path, as well as the way she's built her company, has truly been outside the system. As always, if you're enjoying the show, a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is super helpful in helping to spread the word. If you're getting value from outside the system, you can also support us financially using Bitcoin on Fountain or any other podcast player that supports podcasting 2.0. Let's get into the episode. Shiloh, thanks for joining me on Outside the System today. Thank you for having me. So I came across you through um, actually a previous guest on the podcast, JP uh, Willett from I think episode 13 or 15, one of those. Uh, He actually, after he and I spoke, he on his own suggested that I talk to you and he forwarded me a talk that you did at at Reconvene uh, 2022. I watched that and was very interested in, in kind of the work that you're doing and your journey on how you got here. Um, so definitely had to have you on. So de- really appreciate you uh, you joining. Oh, thank you. JP is awesome. His episode was the best too. He's, yeah. he's just <laughs> such a great guy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's such an open, uh, humble guy too, considering everything he's accomplished. Um, so I think maybe some of these questions I'm, I'm about to ask you might be a little, uh, you might consider them basic questions, but... I mean, first of all, would love to just have you introduce yourself. Um, and then I, I do want to dive into the work that you're doing, uh, because I think it's one super interesting, something I've personally been uh, intrigued by just by uh, kind of following passively on on Twitter and watching some YouTube videos, but um, super curious to dive in. So maybe we just start with an introduction and, and go from there. Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Shiloh Bear. I um, I run a company here in the San Francisco Bay Area called Creek Development, and um, we do right now we're doing four fee development. So we do um, development on behalf of other developers, um, meaning that we do design, construction management, a lot of really early stage planning, um, uh, due diligence, entitlement work, everything that's kind of at the early stage, and then um, we stay on a lot of times through. Um, construction management all the way through, like build out the TIs, build out spaces, and um, and then they get leased up by other people. And what what we're trying to do is transition from being a services business to to being on the equity side. So raising capital, um, buying buildings uh, under our own umbrella, and um, basically doing the same work that we've been doing for other folks, but bringing that in house. Got it. And so. Uh, when you say a services company, so right now you're basically paid a fee for doing this kind of work and you don't receive necessarily any of the upside or ownership in the projects. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you give, can you give like a, con- uh, like a concrete example of how this would work today? You know, one of the types of projects that you currently do, and then maybe what you're trying to transition to with the equity side, just maybe like, and it can be a real example if you're comfortable with that or, or something that's, you know, hypothetical if, if you'd rather do that. Yeah, sure. Most of the um, most of the folks that we work with are working at a larger scale. They're using institutional capital. They're buying, you know, generally 
pretty big sites. So a couple city blocks, um, the one we're working on right now is 200,000 square feet um, of light industrial that's being converted to life science. So a, that's a very typical project for us. So big site, um, industrial to science, industrial to biotech. Um, and so we're going, um, taking it multi-tenant and then building out suites, usually on spec, about 50% of the way on spec. And then once you have walls up and people can start to see the vision, then, um, then they're leased and we're, we're doing it, tailoring more to the tenant. And the types of projects we would, we would like to be doing in-house are, are basically the same thing, but starting out at a smaller scale. So, you know, we're looking at buildings that are 20 to 50,000 feet, um, at, but to, I, to essentially do the same process. So multi-tenant demise, uh, build them out for science tenants. So science tenants are primarily what you're focusing on. Yeah, we do, I mean, we do a certain number every year of, of commercial to multifamily. We do, we used to do commercial to creative office or industrial creative office. Obviously that's pretty dead around here right now. Um, but yeah, I, I would say science is, is about 75% of our work. How did you, how did you get to that, that niche? Like, uh, you know, I would imagine it's not easy to build a, a facility that's, you know, kind of geared towards biotech or, or, um, science in general. So how, how did you kind of find this, this niche or how did you arrive here? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I get it. I went to school for mechanical engineering and I did a lot of research. I actually um, did biomechanics for a little while right after school. So I have a bit of a science background, although my, um, I really quickly pivoted into construction. It, it was uh, not, not my jam to be in a lab all day. I'm kind of an outside person. So I, um, I understand the language and kind of the, the process behind it. Um, but really, I got in with the, um, you know, the landlords that I was doing work for in my company were following that path. So it was it it was starting out by doing landlord work, which was, you know, usually think like the, the base built work or bringing in utilities um, putting up walls, you know, get, getting space ready, like that that first piece before you're even really um, getting into any kind of customization. It came from, from doing those projects. And then um, in doing that, we would often meet tenants and then they would move into other spaces and they would call us to do their build outs. So we did um, a group, we were working maybe four or five years ago for a group that was making pilotless planes. So um, they were doing, it's, it's essentially like full scale drones for um, crop dusting and super interesting. I mean, all these companies are like, it's like looking into the future. It's so cool. The technology that um, you're like, these people are going to save us. It's we're, we're all going to be okay. It's pretty magical. Um, but it, it was just kind of one, one project followed after the other, um, starting out building office space for people and then building out, you know, kind of basic manufacturing. And then it just got more and more, the projects got more complex we got recommended to do more, um, more complex projects and it just kept building from there. Wow. That's fascinating. And that's not the last question I'm going to ask you about how you got (laughs) into this. Um, because it's so, it's so fascinating, uh, thinking about the different paths that people take to arrive at, you know, the niche that they're happy with and that they really enjoy. Um, so kind of, Going back in history now, I meant I listened to that or watched that I guess reconvene 
uh, interview that you had done. And you mentioned something in passing in that that I wanted to dig into a little bit because it's kind of like your origin story. Um, you'd mentioned being scrappy and buying a multifamily with your husband. I think you guys lived in that multifamily as well uh, in Oklahoma. Or maybe I'm missing m- messing up that part. But I, I remember you mentioning that you you had bought one and maybe that was like your first foray into into this world. Yes. Yeah, we were um, we were living here in the Bay. We're both from Oklahoma, but we met out here. Um, and uh, so we were living in the Bay and we were um, we were resident managers of a 26 unit apartment building. So um, that was really like my kind of first adventure into real estate. And I was working for a construction company and someone I knew uh, told me about an opening. We were trying to save money. Living in the Bay is obviously expensive. We were super young. And, um, and so we found this deal where, you know, we were paying like 50% of market rent to basically, you know, check in on little old ladies and change light bulbs. It seemed like a no brainer. Um, we were saving money to buy a house. We were really trying to buy a house in the Bay, obviously super expensive. So while we were doing that, we had, we had saved, you know, around like $40,000 just by being apartment managers as a side hustle. And, um, while we were looking, prices were just going up in the Bay. And so I started looking at multifamily in Oklahoma City. Um, I was looking in, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, but at the time, um, the, the prices to buy were about the same, but the rents were higher in Oklahoma City. So found a building, a really great neighborhood there. Um, it was $220,000 for an eight unit building, which you can't get today, but uh, it was it was a, a good price and it had been sitting for a while. And I called the local bank and they were willing to give me a commercial loan at um, you know 20% down for 15 years. And I took it and um, that was the first, that was the first piece of property that I bought. Um, was an eight unit apartment building out of state. So kind of a, an odd one, but I, I think I'm not the only person that has, that has had to kind of go outside of my market to try to invest. Um, do, you, do you guys still own that building? We do. Yeah. Yeah. We still own that building today and, and have bought a couple more um, over the years in, in that same area. It's been really good. Um, I, I wish, uh, you know, sometime around 2010 when I thought, you know, people were crazy for asking 30,000 a unit. I wish I would have just scooped up as much as I could have. But at the time I was like, that's crazy. I paid 25. I'm not paying a penny over 27,000. You know, obviously I'm an idiot, but here we are. So I don't think you're an idiot. I think the, um, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it, it like pricing is so much based on anchoring and what you think is the normal price. You know, if you, if, if you time traveled some, you know, brought someone from a time machine from like 1950 to today, they would just probably instantly have a heart attack. I think it messes you up though. If you get a really good deal, you're right. You anchor to that really good deal. And so it's hard to pay twice that, even if it's still a good deal, even if the numbers still work, it's, it's just like, well, but I know that I can get it for X and not, you know, why would I pay two X? So it's, it's, it's been a hard lesson for me to learn, but um, I'm getting there. Yeah, I've done some uh, M&A work on the software side, not in, um, you know, not for uh, real estate at all, but, but on the software side. And it's the same thing with buying and selling companies where if, let's say you're on the sell side, you're trying to sell, sell a, a company, a, 
you know, tool or software company or whatever it is, SaaS tool, um, if they've previously bought a company, no matter what the circumstances were, uh, that had a, some similar metrics to you and you're asking for more than what they paid for that other company, you know, instantly they're like, not going to be too happy. Uh, even if you're still offering them actually a very good deal. So it's, it's so exactly. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all like that to be fair. You know, if I bought carrots last week for a dollar fifty a bag and this week they're, you know, I go to the store and they're $2 a bag, I'm going to feel bad, you know, because last week I paid a dollar fifty. So it's, it's like part of, some of it's just human nature, I think. Yeah. We have these mental data points, right? So we're, we're filling out the spreadsheet in our mind of what things are supposed to cost. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, so when you guys bought those in, in Oklahoma and the ones that you've kind of, it sounds like you've continued to buy over the years, do you end up doing kind of the full cycle of work on it? Like, are you also doing, uh, kind of the, the renovations and, you know, I mean, if there are any renovations that, that you've done, um, or if you're just purely operating. No, we've been buying, we've bought heavy value add. So, um, we're doing, uh, all of the construction, um, the, the first building was, was in really bad shape. So, uh, bad roof leaks foundation, um, we did. So we just did it slowly over the years, um, which, you know, people always say like buy the worst house in the nicest neighborhood. I will, I will tell you that is a, a very fast way to be hated. I was in this, <laughs> this neighborhood where everyone had very nice buildings and like very, very nice homes. And, they, they would call me on my cell phone and be like, your house looks like, looks like trash, you know, fix your fence. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, because we were, we were young, we didn't have a lot of money. We were, we were just putting cash flow back into the building. So we had enough to fix the roof and kind of, uh, you know, stabilize the building. But then, then we started doing interiors and then came back to the exterior after. So we did roof first, all eight unit interiors, and then started doing, you know, the, the the brick pointing and retucking the windows, things that came later. So, um, yeah, managing uh, managing the construction from afar, um, going there three or four times a year. And at the time, I was also um, doing property management, which sounds insane, but I, I was like, you know, how hard can it be? I can just like, I can post these on Zillow. I can do like, you know, kind of get these automatic locks where I can let people in and out. They can tour. Um, I did that actually for about six years. And then, um, there were some really bad ice storms and I was really over my head. I, I had some people on the ground, you know, I had like a, a couple of old friends who were musicians who would help and check in on things who had flexible schedules. But when it came to really major problems, I was, you know, I realized that I, I needed to have more systems and it just became like, once it was stabilized, it wasn't really worth my time anymore. At that point I could pay someone and it, it wasn't as, as big of a deal because it, I had done the heavy lifting by that point. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, and then you mentioned like, well, actually taking a step back, how did you then go from doing that to, uh, your current business? Like how, like that seems like, um, you know, uh, there, and I, and I kind of, if you're comfortable with it, want to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of, you know, getting that first customer and, kind of, you know, building that reputation, I guess, over, over time, because I saw you've worked with some incredible clients now. I mean, just on your website, like Y Combinator, it looks like you've worked with Blue Bottle, Lyft. Um, you know, I think there's a few other really interesting names on there as well. So it's like, you know, Lyft wouldn't trust you with their HQ 
or, or whoever is, is hiring you on Lyft's behalf is not going to trust you at the HQ unless you already had, you know, a very positive reputation. So I guess, how did that journey, you know, like talk to me about that, that, that journey from kind of just getting into this, uh, all the way to kind of working with these truly world-class brands. Yeah. Um, let me think. So while I was working on that eight unit building, managing a 26 unit building in Oakland, I was also working at a construction company. So my full-time job at that point was, um, I worked, I started out working for a cabinet shop that got, that partnered with a construction company. So I was working on the cabinet side, building cabinets. Um, I, as soon as I, I knew CAD from engineering, so they pretty quickly had me doing um, cabinet drawings and, and layouts. They also did design builds. So then I started doing like kitchens and bathrooms for people. Um, as that company grew, I kind of grew with them. So I started taking on bigger residential projects. It was all high-end residential. So um, bigger and bigger residential projects, um, which at that point were mostly in the South Bay because, you know, the Valley is where everyone was doing work, Portola, um, Palo Alto. And um, I just wasn't super happy with that. I, I, I think at a certain point, um, high-end residential construction, you're not solving the problem you think you're solving. Like you, you're not people don't hire you because they really need a new kitchen. Like they need marriage counseling or a job or something else. You know, they're, you're feeling, you're feeling a different need. Sometimes it really is that they need to work on their house, but a lot of times it's, it's something else and you're kind of caught in the middle and, and you're not aligned on like, there, there's no real need to finish the project. So they, they drag on for a very long time. It's hard for people to make decisions. I, I like to move quickly. And um, I knew that the, the few commercial projects I had worked on, I felt like they, they moved really fast. Everyone was aligned on the budget and the schedule. And it was just about getting it done. And so I wanted to be a little bit more in that world. Um, I went to work for a developer uh, in San Francisco who was doing um, multifamily development. So ground up um, new constructions. So I was scouting land, doing entitlement work for them because I had done a lot of permit work. Um, so I was doing that and that felt a little closer, but wasn't, still wasn't quite the right fit. Um, and I, I started out on my own. I just said, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to do construction. I know, I know I'm a great construction manager, so I'll, I know how to do entitlements. I'll build a business around that. And I'm going to try to focus on the commercial world. Um, I called mostly architects and other, you know, people that I knew from the industry, told them what I was doing just tried to set up some meetings. Um, within the first week, honestly, I met um, two really great, uh, pretty big landowners uh, here in the Bay and immediately got started in on projects with them and just grew from there. So it, I thought there was going to be this very slow, gradual build where I was going to build these great systems and I was going to uh, you know, I don't I take my time and build out a website. I didn't, I did. I was using my personal email address until like I was 18 months in. I mean, I just, it just was like, I hit the ground and I was running and I was just running and it took, it took like actually me meeting a leasing broker who was like, I want to recommend you for a project and you don't have a website and you're using your Gmail, please work with me. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I got you. I hear loud and clear. Well, that's one sign people really want to work with you. I mean, you know, yeah. having them, yeah, having them uh, being willing to work with you despite your Gmail. And, you know, that's it's actually really interesting because I've seen that with some other uh, founders who I know who've 
done things in like e-commerce or even consulting stuff or services businesses. And they'll just make like a little website and put their Gmail on there. Right. And it's like, if people are still going with that, you probably have something, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's almost like you're putting up barriers for people to get through and they're still getting through that. They probably really want what you're selling. I know. I, I was, I was reluctant to, um, I was reluctant to hire because I'm, I'm frankly not a great manager of people. And, um, and I, I wanted to, I, I like doing the work. And I knew that as soon as I had a team that that was going to take away from doing the work. I sense, you know, I have, I've come to terms with it. And I, I, I have a great team now, but it, I did grow pretty slowly in the beginning. I'm, I'm uh, like, sorry, I'm, I'm at about year seven right now. So I started in 2016 and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going now. I feel, I feel like it's a good business. It's, it's sustaining and I'm ready to take it to the next step and start buying our, start buying buildings. And so that next step would involve probably bring, raising outside capital and bringing on investors. Yes. Yeah. So last, uh, let's see, 2020, we started buying land off our balance sheet and, and doing entitlement work. Um, so we were basically doing like small land flips. So we were buying land entitling it, selling it with entitlements. Not what is it, super. What does entitlements mean? That means um, you're, you're essentially um, getting permits to be able to build something. So you're, we were either buying like a land for a single family home, getting all of the permits in the Bay Area. That's, you know, two years ish of investment. Oh, wow. So yep. yeah, plus all the plans, but because we do the plans in house, we do a lot of permit expediting it was a pretty easy path for us. If, if my team was slow, we would work on these projects and just, you know, move them through the city. And then once they all got approved for people who can't wait two years to build a house, they would, they would buy our land with our, our plans and our permits, and then they could just start right away. Mm, okay, and, so that really speeds things up for them. Yeah. So we've done six or seven of those. That's been great and a way for us to kind of get on the investment side without using outside capital because the, you know, the purchase prices are pretty small and then we're just using our in-house labor and, and then selling. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not holding, so it's not really an investment. It's more of a flip. Um, last year we, um, I did a soft raise of about 4 million. Um, found a found a deal that I thought was going to work um, that was about three million. It was twenty thousand square foot building. We were planning to put another million into it and um, you know convert it into kind of light lab. And um, I wasn't able to to complete the race. I worked on it for about six months. I it, it was a really shaky time in the economy and. Um, I think that that 4 million that I started with ended up at about 2.75. So it was a lot of, it took a ton of meetings. It, I, I went back through the data recently and I was like, wow, there were, there were a few people I met with, you know, in person four or five times before they said yes to a $50,000 check. And um, so it was a lot. Yeah. I had like 45 investors. Um, I had done maybe 200 you know, meetings with different people to get to that, that number of like 45 investors. Um, 
and it was it was honestly really really hard it was um i feel like i've done a lot of hard things in my life but um raising outside capital was really tough for me because i i don't come from money i didn't go to the ivy league i don't i just don't have those people in my circle you know so in the end it was um it was some of those people and some real estate people and a lot of you know it was like my friend that owns a sprinkler company you know it was just like uh, people who have a good business who never get asked to invest in in these deals um but in the end it just wasn't enough and and so you basically failed to reach the the number that you were hoping to reach but i mean i guess from a timing perspective it might not have been the worst thing to not get in at that time no it it was it's okay it's okay that it didn't happen um i i would say it was a little bit of a of a momentum blow to to like really try to put everything everything you have into something and have it not work i mean i could not have tried any harder and and it didn't happen and i wired people their money back and i don't know i i moped for a couple of days and dusted myself off and got back out there so i'm trying again um i'm looking at a few deals right now and you know they're all they're ones that are moving slowly which feels right to me um i I, the time crunch was really stressful to try to you know it was like when you have something in contract you really have a limited time to pull it all together um well the good news is you've already pitched all of these people so you probably have a document or two with all their names, emails, phone numbers, what you talked about, how much they committed. Like, definitely, you, you're probably starting from a much further point. Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And a really cool lesson was just, hey, it's not that, um, it's not that that I didn't have a good deal or that I'm not a good operator. It's just my bench isn't deep enough. I don't know enough people, and so that was really a big impetus for me um, to speak at reconvene to be more active on Twitter, just, just to, you know, get my name out there and talk to more people and meet more people, which is honestly very far outside my comfort zone, but it's what I have to do to, to get where I'm trying to go. And it's been really good. It's been really good for me. It's been a, a very, um, it's, I'm in, I'm definitely in a growth phase that I don't think I would have been had that deal gone through. I would just be heads down working on the deal. Right. So it's, it's yep. really different. So we'll make sure to put this in the show notes, but and, and you know we'll we'll come back to it at the end of the episode. But if somebody, let's say, was listening and was like, "Oh, this is interesting," I'm potentially interested in being an LP or an inv- or an investor um, with Shiloh. Is there a place that they can go to indicate their interest, or should they just reach out to you on Twitter or something like that? Yeah, either way, we have um, on our, our website is um, www.creekdev.com. So like Creek Development, but C-R-E-E-K-D-E-V.com. And on there, there's a link where you can sign up to invest. Also, I'm on Twitter at, at Shiloh Bear. Um, that's S-H-I-L-O-E-B-E-A-R. And um, on my Twitter bio, there's also a link to invest. Awesome. And why would uh, somebody not invest? Like, what are some of the questions or objections that you get? I, I, I think that's always worth diving into because, you know, I'm sure you probably did. I mean, it sounds like a tons of these pitch meetings. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you've heard every question under the sun. Uh, yeah. what, are, what are some of the things that, you know, people coming into the meeting know that you're pitching them on a real estate deal. You know, what are the kinds of things that make people uh, like, what are the kinds of even things that they ask, right? That, that make them, you know, convinced one way or the other? 
Yeah, I, I think for me, what's been surprising is that one of the hurdles I've seen the most is people really don't understand the science space. Um, as an asset class, it's it's not in every market. And so if you're an investor in um, Kansas City or uh, in Indianapolis, you don't really know anything about the life science market as a as a market. You don't even realize it's a market. You don't know that there's there's a whole industry around it. Um, so there's a market education around talking to people about what science space is, how you lease it, what it rents for, where those companies want to be. Um, so a lot of the meetings I had, people were like, look, I, I'm, I love what you're doing. I love your vision. I love your story. Can you just bring me a vanilla multifamily deal? And that's been good feedback. So I'm like, okay, I, I can, I can do that too. So let me try to, let me try to find some multifamily deals. Um, I feel like my niche is a strength and I think eventually I'll get to the point where people will, I'll have enough people in my corner who understand that and, and want to support it. But if I have to do some multifamily deals to get there, that's fine. I know how to do that too. Um, I just think they're a little, um, there's there's more competition in that space and um, lower returns because it is it is pretty vanilla it is it's it's pretty predictable nobody's going to pay you two times the rent because you have more power or three times the rent because you're next door to the space that they want to be in and they have to expand it's not going to happen but it's very steady yeah so it's steady but without the I guess as much opportunity for the outsized returns that this space can generate. I think that's right. Um, yeah. And then what else? Uh, ah, I was thinking of something else, but I forgot it. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. So we'll definitely put those links in the show notes because, you know, they're to your point about getting more out there. There could be people listening to this who are, you know, potentially interested in getting involved. So um, since you are, you know, kind of getting back into the raising process, maybe maybe some people will reach out and uh, and be interested in, in potentially investing. Yeah. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention actually is we do. Um, we're also looking at sites that that have good entitlement opportunity in the long term. So even if right now we're looking at keeping the building largely as is, you know, fixing up what we need to fix up to make it ready for um, for a science user, we are looking with an eye for future development so that in, you know, maybe, maybe it's not this cycle, but maybe in the next cycle, whenever that is, if it makes sense to entitle a site for 15 stories or, you know, something that's a much bigger space, um, we're looking at sites that have good, uh, good development potential long-term. And I think part of that is we're, we're trying to think a lot longer term. Um, one, because, we have the entitlement background, but two, just as, just like that building that I, you know, bought when I was a youngster, that's, that I still have. I think if you can hold real estate as long as you can, that's really my goal. I'm, I'm not trying to be a, in and out in three years. Um, that it's just not what I'm trying to do with it. And so I think part of, um, this whole journey is, is finding the people who are aligned with, both the types of projects that you're trying to do and also the, the duration that you're trying to hold. So I'm looking for pretty patient capital people who are, are really trying to, to hold for the long term. I'm not, I'm not trying to do a, a quick flip. 
Yeah, so not somebody who's looking for just kind of like a quick in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I want to pivot to, because just from your website and, and research I was doing ahead of us talking, I think is really fascinating, interesting part of, of what you do. So, you know, you've on your website and on Twitter, I've even seen you talk about community and what you guys are kind of doing for the community. So sounds like you do some projects that are more kind of uh, for nonprofits, um, and you're yes. allocating a certain amount of your time to that. And then you also mentioned something in the reconvene uh, interview with with Moses Kagan about uh, you view you know the employment that you're offering to your team as one of the wins of, of what you're doing. And and so just you know you can kind of take this in any direction you want, but I I thought it was for an industry that uh, I think has a reputation of being a bit cutthroat and you know money. Uh, dominant and not really thinking about broader consequences. Uh, at least as an outsider, that's one of my impressions in the real estate world. Uh, yes. It's it's really nice to see uh, kind of what you're doing and, and your focus on kind of the bigger picture. So yeah, anyway, you can take that in whatever direction you like, but that's just something I observed and was curious to get you know more of your thoughts on. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I'll start with the nonprofit work. So uh, we decided in uh, around 2020, I was talking with my team about how how we can be um, a little bit more connected to our community. I do think that real estate has a, uh, a, re- a reputation that is sometimes rightfully deserved for being pretty extractive. Um, and that's not who we are, my team, that's not who I am. And and um, so one of the ideas we had was let's try to, to do 20% of our projects for local nonprofits and do them at a discounted rate. And the idea came from, we were we were working on a, on a big site and there was a nonprofit who was in the space and they their space was just bad. It was just like kind of depressing and sad. And they had some money, but they didn't think t- they just didn't know the process of construction or design or construction management, how to build out their space. So um, it's been really great for us. We've done, uh, we, we just finished a 12,000 square foot youth center in Richmond that was incredible, like designed by young people for young people. They bought a, uh, like an old dilapidated grack house from the county and they built a new center in this space. And, and the young people who were, designing it knew that they they were going to age out of the program it wasn't really for them it was for their little you know their little brothers and sisters and their nieces and nephews and um so even they're thinking really long term about how to have a, a, a space in the community um yeah they were just super cool to work with i i mean for me personally it comes from a place of like i'm i am not self-made like i I make no claims and in that front, like I have had so many hands up from so many different, I mean, if you just want to think from a purely a community standpoint, I mean, from head start to pale grants, like I have had like every benefit, free lunches, whatever I have, I have benefited from so many community programs and, um, and in, and in kind of every step of the way, every step of my journey, I have had people, who have said, like, who have kind of steered me and said, okay, you need to stay in school. You need to have scholarships. You need to change your major because you can't, you're not going to be able to get scholarships doing what you're doing. So I changed my major. I'm able to stay in school. I'm able to finish college. Um, 
literally every, every step of my path, there have been people who have helped to guide and shape and get me to where I'm going. And, and it's, and it's just been help. It's just been either me asking for help or people just offering it because people help each other. And, um, I've just, I consider myself so lucky. I mean, I, given where I came from, like, there's no way I should be sitting where I'm sitting. It's just not, it's statistically very, very improbable. And I'm grateful for that. And so I really want to try to bring as many people up with me that I can. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a really good way to think about it. And I'm sure like the other thing that I noticed, at least from your team page on the the website is, you know, you've, you've really got, um, in the industry, at least from my, again, outsider perspective, I would imagine this industry is extremely male dominant. Um, it is. A, yeah. So I'm not wrong, I guess, from the outside perspective. <laughs> it is. It's very yeah. white and very male. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you're doing a good, I mean, just, okay. You're a female running a company in this space. That's by itself really interesting, but your team is also, you know, kind of has a, it doesn't look like the typical real estate firm. Let's put it, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's on purpose. I mean, it's, um, it, I, I try to, um, I try to give access to people who may not get hired at the traditional firms. Um, and I consider that sort of a, a, a service as well, because we're usually hiring people who need more, more training. Either they haven't come up through real estate. They haven't worked in a private equity space. They haven't, um, you know, they, they just don't have the same backgrounds. And so a, a lot of times we have had interns that have come in, but because of the experience at our firm, they've been able to go on to, uh, two bigger, two bigger firms, like, a CBRE will take a chance on someone who has worked with us where they won't take a chance on someone who, you know, is just coming out of community college. And so that feels to me like a way to help bring people up. Um, but yeah, we, um, there's a, a stat that, you know, men will apply to a job if they meet 65% of the qualifications and for women, it's about 98%. And so, um, you know, every job I post, I have a little thing that says, statistically, you know, if you don't meet all the qualifications, please apply anyway. Let's talk. You know, but let's let's see. Like, I really believe in potential, not just that you've done a thing before, but that you can do a thing. And um, yeah, it's important to me. I I know it it resonates with some people. Uh, it doesn't with other people, but that's it's who I am. And I feel like to be true to myself, that's, that's part of my process. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can say that I have applied to things I have no business applying to. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one. Yeah. Because I meet like one of the qualifications and I'm like, okay, that's probably enough. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they'll give me a chance. And, but you know what, to be, to be honest, like you can't get a job you don't apply for. So, you know, you just kind of have to shoot your shot sometimes and hopefully, you know, and, and to your, and also from the employer's perspective, uh, you know, you might not hundred percent know what exactly you're looking for until you see it. And so somebody might exclude themselves who could actually be a great fit because you didn't know that, or, or you didn't put something in the job description that was a hundred percent matched them, but really that's who you want. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's important that people just, you know, kind of, and I'm glad you put that disclaimer in there because I think it, 
hopefully encourages more people to to just try. You know, even when I uh, spoke at Reconvene, um, I was having breakfast with Moses. We were talking about it. And, um, you know, he he said, like, hey, I know you applied for this. And and I and I think you'd be great. And I said, I, I want to be really clear. You the one thing you said is this is for people who have done a couple of deals with other people's money, but are still having trouble raising. And I was like, I literally don't meet that qualification. And I'm I'm concerned that there will be people who meet that qualification, who have applied, who, you know, are, are maybe feeling frustrated. And he was like, no, no one else would think that, you know, that's just not how most people think. But here we are. And, and and how have you navigated to like you not kind of coming from the traditional real estate background, not looking like the traditional real estate, you know, CEO, has that hurt or helped you as you've, you know, kind of gone and pitched projects? Like, does it get people? Cause I could see one world where it probably gets people's attention that it, and I was actually talking about this with JP uh, separately where, and this wasn't specific to you. It was specific to just in general people's backgrounds that when somebody is successfully able to do something and they don't come from the traditional background, and that could be anything, it could be education, it could be gender, it could be race, whatever, it actually is a great signal that they're ex- incredibly talented and skilled at what they're doing. Whereas, uh, and I, I don't think we invented this, I think I'm sure I've read this in a book or something somewhere, um, but whereas if somebody is like more traditional, it's like your bar for them should actually be higher um, and I think actually now that I'm saying it out loud, uh, Nassim Taleb has talked about this where he's saying you don't want the surgeon who looks like the person who Hollywood would pick to play a surgeon. You want the surgeon who actually doesn't look anything like what you'd see a surgeon look like on TV because that guy's probably actually good at what he does. <laughs> yes. You've had to hustle a lot yes. harder. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think you're... I think you're right. I think your instinct is right that it's it it's an advantage and a disadvantage. I, I think that um, you know I'm I'm more memorable, right? Like people wow. who have met me are gonna are gonna remember me because I do look different. I have a different name. I um, yeah, you know I'm I'm just not your typical real estate person. So I think that's in my favor. I you know I have a feeling that when men are meeting with investors probably people don't ask them right away um, if they have kids and how they're going to manage taking care of their kids if they are running a building um, or if they're married and what that situation looks like. So, I I mean, I think there are, I've said this on Twitter before, I think people like helping people that remind themselves of their younger selves. So I think that's a disadvantage in getting started because there aren't a lot of women who are, who are going to come in, or minorities who are going to come in to try to help me out. But, um, you know, men can see themselves in you too. You know, they can see in, in your journey and, and in, the, in the struggle, in, in your experiences. So they can see themselves in you too. It's just a little bit more of a stretch, I think, for them. My, my, my hope, my theory is that once I've done a couple of these successfully, all of that stuff fades more into the background and it's just about your results. Right. I think at, at some point, I think we do get to a place of or closer to a place of meritocracy. But I think that where that myth falls short is in the beginning stages. Like you, you have to have people take a chance on you. You have to have people who will who will, um, you know, invest even even if you don't have 
three projects that you've started and closed out with other people's money. And, and those people are, are, they're honestly, you know, they are taking a chance, even though I've done 50 of these projects more, um, I haven't done with them with other people's money. And, and I'm sure everyone has that has trouble getting their first one or two off the, off the board. And I think where, um, where most people succeed in this is that their, their first raise is friends and family. I mean, they call it a friends and family round, right? And so if you're a person that doesn't have um, friends and family who have money, that's a harder jump. It's just a harder jump. And then you're at, you're at acquaintances and strangers. <laughs> and that's, that's a harder sell. It just, it just is. It's, you know, it's what's the easiest way to be, you know, be born rich, then get richer. So, <laughs> it is definitely yeah. easier as uh, I think I forget who said it, but it's like the first million is the hardest, right? It's like, right, it's right. absolutely true. It's like you have to really, you know, scrape by to get there. And then then it's things get easier once you already right. have money. So, yeah, yeah, I, I really think that once I've done, you know, three or four, sorry, I think once I've done three or four or five of these, like all, all of that is going to go away. And it's just it's just going to be a much more straightforward process. Yeah. And as, and as we kind of wrap up, um, if somebody is listening to this, who's not from kind of, let's say the traditional finance real estate background, but is really intrigued by, you know, what you're talking about and, and what you do and wants to learn more, get, get involved themselves, you know, what's a good next step for them? Are there things that they should be watching, reading people they should be reaching out to, you know, side jobs they should be getting to, that kind of really help teach them? What would be, you know, to somebody who's, looking at this today, just looking to get into it, what's a, a you know good next step for them? I mean, I love the on-site manager path um, for apartment buildings in California. You have to have an on-site manager by law if you have more than 16 units. And it's a it's really a part-time job, but you are able to, the maximum rent they can charge for one person is $704, something like that. And so it's a way that you can save money, you can get real estate experience, you can get property management experience. Um, if it's kind of like a pre-house hack, you know, I think a lot of people think about like buy a fourplex and live in it. And it, I mean, even that takes money, right? So how do you get the money to buy a fourplex? You, that's one path. Um, I think real estate Twitter is incredible. It's um, at the time that I really got involved in real estate Twitter, I was, um, I was really, I was really feeling a lot like that. I didn't have a community that I didn't have, not that I didn't have community, that I didn't have peers, that I didn't have people who were, um, I know people who are working at the institutional level. I know people who are flipping houses. I'm like in between, right. I'm looking at these like three to $10 million deals. And it's, I, I didn't know a lot of people working at that level. I feel like there's so much education that people share. There's so much community there. There's so much, um, I don't know, I've, I've learned a ton. I've been inspired by people. I've met a lot of people in real life. I never thought I would, I, I don't really do other social media. So I really feel funny even saying it. Like I don't talk about it in my real life because it sounds bananas, but I have such a great group of people there. And at this point, I just think of it like I'm on a group text with 30 of my friends and I'm, and we're just bouncing ideas off each other. And I, I love it. That's awesome. Um, well, we're going to put your, uh, Twitter page in the, in the show notes. We're also going to put the reconvene talk you did with Moses, um, in the show notes and, 
any other links or things that we discussed on the episode. Um, but Shiloh, I really want to thank you for, for coming on and, uh, you know, really inspired by your journey and, and, uh, thanks for, thanks for sharing more with us here. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It's been so nice talking to you. Yeah. And this was your first podcast, right? This is my first ever podcast. Yes. Nice. So you and JP, I got, I got your first. <laughs> yeah. JP talked me into it actually. Yeah. You have to do it. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> you, you know, funny backstory for, for that one is um, he also, when I reached out, he, his feedback was, hey, I've never been on a podcast, interested, but not sure if I want to do it. We ended up talking on the phone for like an hour, hour and a half. And wow. I, I actually was worried the episode wouldn't come out that well because we'd already talked about every a lot of things, oh, not everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, I think you and I did it a little bit better. We had a call, we discussed, but we didn't get into all these details. So I still, like that curiosity was still there about asking you all these questions. But then JP and I actually went in a couple different directions in the actual episode that were different than what we had discussed ourselves. But I think, you know, he needed the phone conversation to get comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, but thanks for joining again. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for, for everyone to hear this. And hopefully, you know, people reach out who are interested in learning more. And, um, and you know, I'm excited to see your progress as, as you build your company.